you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to be spending the next three weeks looking at the ups and downs and the turbulent life of Elijah. And I think, I think the Lord is going to be able to say and minister to us in some really, really powerful ways. So we're going to start this week. 1 Kings chapter 17 as Elijah comes onto the scene. We're going to read the whole chapter, so if you need to sit down, there's, there's no embarrassment, no shame, no, no problem with that whatsoever. I want you to be able to do that. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now Elisha the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life be in him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and we ask that you would remove blinders from our eyes where they exist. Father, wherever false gods have built strongholds in our lives, that today those altars would be crushed and shattered. 
Father, Father, wherever we're seeking to find comfort, our, our priorities are apart from you being at the center of our lives, that God, you would reveal that to us and you would convict us of that and that, Lord, you would draw us nearer to you that we may know above every other knowledge that we may attain in this earth that our God is alive. Father, I pray that this morning our pursuit would not be to have more that our pursuit would not be to be more prosperous, that our pursuit would not be to be more prestigious, that our pursuit would not be to be uh, more, uh, more well-liked, uh, but that, Lord, this morning our pursuit would be to have a satisfying life in Christ and in Christ alone. God, open up your word through the Spirit and let us see. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In 2006... There was a Filipino fisherman who did what he had done hundreds of times before. His anchor had gotten stuck beneath some rocks, and so he jumped out of his boat and he swam down to the bottom of the, of the sea there where his anchor was stuck to, to get it unhung. And while he was down there, he saw something that caught his eye. There was the largest clam that he had ever seen in his life. And he was there to get his anchor unhung, but he knew, I have to have that. I've never seen, all the years I've been fishing, I've never seen anything quite like this. And so even though it was 75 pounds, this fisherman takes it and he lugs this clam up to the top, to the surface. Inside the clam, what he finds is that there is a pearl. And that pearl is one inch wide and two, I mean, one foot wide and two feet long. It's a big pearl, big pearl. As time goes on, he takes it, and, and this pearl becomes his good luck charm. He takes it, and he, he places it underneath the bed in his room, and every day before he would go out on his, on his fishing journeys, they would go, and they would rub the clam for good luck, and then he would place it back beneath his bed. But about 10 years later, after having this good luck pearl in his life, his luck runs out, and his house burns down. And the only thing that he's able to that he's able to uh, to rescue from his burning house is this good luck pearl, which I think at this point says proven. It's not such great luck after all. And so he takes his good luck pearl and he, and he leaves it with his Aunt Eileen. And I point that out because all of us have an Aunt Eileen, don't we? I mean, all of us. And so he leaves the pearl with his Aunt Eileen and she becomes curious the way Aunt Eileen's and Karen's usually do, right? And she decides that she wants to see if this pearl that's been under her nephew's bed is worth anything. And so she takes it to have it appraised, and she is astonished at what she finds out. That if it verifies, and since then we know that it has, it is the largest and most valuable pearl in the world. That what her nephew discovered in the midst of that clam was a $100 million pearl. Now what's striking about that to me is what that pearl was kept in. This is the clam. Isn't that a strange-looking container for $100 million? That's a strange-looking container for such a, a valuable treasure, isn't it? Perhaps even worse than the clam is beneath the bed. Beneath the bed, that's where the monsters live. At least that's what my kids tell me. And he takes this pearl, this $100 million treasure, and he stores it underneath the bed. And it brings into my mind what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, talking about those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have found hope in Jesus, he says that we're like jars of clay. That we're like jars of clay, that, that 
We're strange-looking, odd containers. And when the gospel comes, it's the most valuable treasure in the world. It is the, the pearl of greatest price. And he takes this pearl of greatest price and he places it inside of a container that looks like this. I thought y'all would like that. I thought y'all would like that. This is the only photograph. This is the photograph that I have from the night that I professed faith in Jesus. And the night that I was saved. Jesus is willing to save that guy. <laughs> that guy. Inside of that container, God said, through my son, let me channel my glory. Let me place the pearl of greatest price. In fact, I'm not alone. A lot of y'all are pretty odd looking too. But as you read throughout the scriptures, as you read throughout the scriptures, what you see is that God is content in fact, God is more than content. God is pleased to channel his glory through shocking and surprising vessels. As we look in the uh, First Kings chapter 17, I think that's what comes to the forefront. That God is channeling his glory through odd vessels, through strange vessels, through surprising vessels. That his glory may be renowned among the nations. That it may be known that above every other God and above every other Lord and above every other uh, one to whom knees have bowed, there is only one who is actually alive. The first vessel that I want us to see this morning is that God speaks through displaced prophets. That God speaks through displaced prophets. Now, if God never spoke to us, we wouldn't know who he is and we wouldn't know who we are. All we would have is evidence and imagination. And when you take human imagination and you match it with whatever evidence that God gives us, we have proven, according to Romans chapter 1, that we can come up with all kinds of lunacy. But God in his grace has spoken to us. He's spoken so that we can know who he is and he has spoken so that you and I can know who it is that we are. He has spoken across every generation in ways that that generation can understand and relate and hear from the voice of the Lord. In the era that we're entering now in 1 Kings chapter 7, 17, God begins speaking to his people in a particular way through the prophets. We're coming into the age of the prophet. And as we come into the age of the prophet, we're meeting what is perhaps the greatest of all the prophets. There with Moses and Jesus was one other figure on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it was the, the prototype of all of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. Elijah. Now, Elijah seemingly comes out of nowhere. It says here that he is from Tishbe, but scholars don't even today know exactly where Tishbe was. And further, most of the time, as you read through the Old Testament, prophets are typically introduced in the same formula. The word of the Lord came to such and such, and he was a prophet of the Lord. But here, that's not what happens at all. Instead, this obscure prophet from the middle of nowhere, from a town none of us know where it was, just bursts onto the scene, waltzes into the Oval Office, and tells the president that he's going to cause a drought by his word to come over the whole land. This is a brave and bold man, isn't it? Now there's a particular setting and context to which Elijah is sent by the Lord to speak on behalf of the Lord to his king and to his people. Ahab has become king. And we learned this one chapter earlier in 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab has ascended the throne. And in the, in the midst of a bunch of evil kings, the 1 Kings chapter 16 says that Ahab was the most wicked of all the kings. It says, in fact, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any of the other kings that had come 
before him, and that was saying a lot. You see, Ahab had me- measured, uh, married a woman from Phoenicia, a woman from Sidon by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel bowed to Baal. And bowing to Baal, she brought Ahab, and he began to bow to Baal. And Ahab bowing to Baal brings all of Israel with him. And all of Israel has been led by their king down prostrate before a false god, this god that is supposed to issue all of this prosperity to them. So here is Elijah, and he's come waltzing in. You can just imagine the scene, this super hairy guy. That's the description the Bible gives us, who's a kind of a gruff character, waltzing into the Oval Office, putting dirt on all the rugs to tell him that the Lord isn't pleased and the Lord's judgment is about to fall. Now, you can imagine how this would go over, right? You can imagine the scene there that is stunning them silent. But what you have to acknowledge, what you have to understand to really get the picture is to notice what he says as he confronts Ahab. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Now, he uses the word, he uses lives there very, very specifically. And you'll notice there that he even double enunciates who he's speaking on behalf of as the Lord, the God of Israel. In case you don't know Ahab, God, Israel already has a God. Israel already has a God that has delivered them from Uh, Egypt. Israel already has a God that has provided for them in the wilderness. Israel already has a God that has called the walls of Jericho to fall down. Israel already has a God that has proven himself faithful across the generations. And this God, he's alive. Now, what you have to understand is by pointing out that this is, first of all, going to bring about a drought, he's attacking the very moral center of who Baal is supposed to be. Baal is a storm god. That is, Bell is in charge of the rain. Bell is in charge of the lightning. Bell is in charge of, of making sure that the ground is fertile and the, wa- the crops are watered. And in the Middle East, water is quite a valuable resource. And so there was no God that was more revered and no God that was seemingly more dependent upon by those who knew of him than Bell. He was the one that was supposed to control it. And so by saying that there's a drought coming, he is showing that there is one who is over the rain, but it is not Bell. There is one who is over the fertility of the land, but it is not Baal. There is one in, whose, in whom the well-being of the people rests, but it is not this one that Jezebel is leading the people of God to bow down before. Something else you need to realize about the Baal cult. That in uh, Sidonian mythology, the way that they understood Baal is they understood that, again, being in the Middle East, there was this drought, this dry season that would come, right? And when the dry season would come, their understanding was, was that Baal died. Baal died. Okay, so he was alive and he would bring the rain and the rains would come and the crops would be watered and the, and the soil would become fertile, but then he would die. And so they would have to go through all of these uh, crazy rituals. We're going to see even more clearly in 1 Kings chapter 18 to try to, uh, to cause uh, Bel to be risen from the dead, to bring him back, to awaken him and to pay attention to his people that he would be able to supply them. And so what does, what does Elijah say? I'm coming on behalf of a living God that actually does what you think Bill does. I'm coming on behalf of one who isn't dependent upon me cutting myself or or having some crazy chant. I'm coming on behalf of one who will bring a drought, and when it's time for the drought to go, I won't cut myself, I won't scream, I won't chant, I won't dance, I won't go and find prostitutes in the temple. Instead, I will just say, Lord, will you bring the rain back, and the Lord will do it. Because my God, my God doesn't have to be raised from the dead. My God, he's alive. My God, he's alive. See, the question that was facing Ahab and Israel is the question that's facing you and I. Who's dead and who's alive? 
That is, what's real and what's not. Who's dead, who's alive, what's real and what's not. Because this, this, brothers and sisters, is the starting point for all of life. If you think back to the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I started with at the beginning of the service, this is what Paul is getting at. I've heard people say, you know, that if, and, and kind of their apologetic for Christianity is something like this, that if I'm right and you're wrong, then you've lost everything. But if you're right and I'm wrong and there is not a God and Jesus is not raised from the dead, then in fact, I haven't lost anything and you haven't really gained much. Paul says this is absurdity. This is absurdity. That in fact, because Christianity calls you to come and die, because it calls you to come and take up your cross and follow after Jesus, because it calls you to follow after one that demands all of your life laid down there before him, that if you come and you commit yourself to a Savior that is not raised and to a God that is not alive, you have wasted your life. You've wasted the only thing that you have. That if Jesus is not raised from the grave, you should make every dollar that you should make. You should have every side hustle that you can have. You should cut every corner that you can cut. You should buy everything that you can buy. You should store up every treasure on this earth that you can store up because brothers and sisters is as good as it gets. But if Jesus is alive, if he has conquered over the grave, if this life is a mere investment in an eternity that is to come, then laying down your life, that's a small price to pay. Laying down your life is your greatest opportunity. It is the pathway to eternity. It is the pathway to satisfaction. It is the pathway to joy. And so the question that's facing Ahab is the same question that is facing the American church. Who's dead and who's alive? Who's right and who's wrong? You see, whatever it is that you perceive to be most true is that around which will establish your priorities for your life. I say most true because all of us have things that intellectually we will agree is true, but that we deny with our lives. Ahab, if you would have went to Ahab and you would have asked Ahab, is Yahweh really a God? He would have said, of course he's a God. He's just one of them. If you would have asked him if Yahweh would have delivered Israel out of uh, Egypt, he would have said, well, yeah. If you would have asked him if he would have rained manna, he would have said, well, yeah. If you would have asked him if he gave him the promised land there in Canaan, he would have said, yeah. He believed it intellectually, but he didn't believe it was most true because he lived as though Yahweh was dead. And for so many of us, we would acknowledge with our lips that Jesus is Lord, but deny him by our lives. That yes, I believe Jesus was resurrected. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the greatest priority in life. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Lord of Lord and the God of God. And I believe all the nations will, yes, I believe that. But in my life, I actually live like he didn't raise from the grave at all. In my life, I actually live as though he is dead. This is what the case is for Israel. This is the case for Ahab. And this is the question that is also proposed to, uh, to Elijah. I think that we would be mistaken if we believe that this is all easy for Elijah, okay? I, I think in, in our minds, when we hear of people like this, we think, okay, you know, God speaks to him. God speaks to him, tells him what to do. He should just go and do it. But he does that with us too. And is that so easy for us? It's not, is it? It's not. In fact, it says that the Lord word comes to Elijah, says, depart from him and turn eastward and hide yourself. Now, why would you have to go and hide You'd have to go and hide because life is hard. 
because it's difficult, because it's challenging, because you're under threat, because there are people that don't like you, because those that are in power want to do away with you, want to eliminate you because you are seen as a threat. Life is difficult for Elijah. And so the question that's facing Ahab is facing Elijah too. Why is it that Ahab and Israel were tempted to bow down to Baal? And this is a, a, an ongoing conflict for them, isn't it? Why is it they were so tempted? Because Baal offered them more. Baal offered them more prosperity. Baal offered them more money. Baal offered them a promotion. He, he offered them a higher standard of living. He could give them the fertility of the ground that would ensure that their crops would come through, that would ensure that they would be able to multiply and have all the things that their dreams could dream of, that those who were at the bottom could find their ways to the top, those that were on the top could stay at the top. And this would have been tempting to Elijah just as it was to Ahab and to all of Israel. All Elijah has to do is to acquiesce to what Ahab is saying and say, yeah, Yahweh is great, but he's just great among a bunch of others that are great. Yeah, Yahweh has provided for Israel, but but maybe Baal can too. Let's cover all of our bases. And then he could have risen through the ranks as a prophet in the king's household and been provided for by Ahab and eaten at the king's table and had all the things that the king's life would have afforded him. But instead, instead he goes and he hides down in the river, down by the brook Kareth, where he doesn't know exactly how much food he's going to have. Instead, he goes and he trusts that the Lord is going to send ravens, and from the beaks of ravens, he's going to eat bread and meat. Now, one of those paths is easy, and one of those paths is satisfying. You see, Israel and Ahab, they wanted more. They wanted an easier life. They wanted a comfortable life. They they wanted a life that was appealing and attractive to all of the nations. Elijah, the life he chose wasn't easy, was it? Living in hiding, displaced from his homeland, displaced from his people. But let me ask you, what's more satisfying? To go to the pantry and get out some frosted flakes or to eat from the hand of God himself? To be fed from the very beaks of ravens according to the decree of God. So the question that's facing us this morning is do you want more or do you want best? That was the question that was facing Elijah. That was the the question that was facing Ahab and Israel. Do you want more? Do you want what Baal can give to you? Or do you want my best? This morning, if there were a teenager in here. And you would say that what I'm looking for is not the easier life. I'm willing to not be invited to all the parties. I'm willing to be uh, made fun of at school. I'm willing to be on the outside looking in social circles. I'm, I'm willing to be the one that, that it doesn't have all the jokes to tell and all the stories to, to be a part of. What I'm willing to do is set all of that aside that I might not have an easier life, but instead I might have a more satisfying life, that I might see the glory of God high and lifted up in my life, that I might devote myself unto him today and this day going forward. Can I tell you here in small town Alabama, you would be a a young man or a young woman through whom God would channel his glory? We'd have a young mom who would say, yeah, there's so many temptations out there to have my kids and all of the stuff. To make sure that I'm measuring up to all of the pictures and to all of the people and doing all of the things. But I'm willing for other moms to not think I'm awesome. 
I'm, I'm, I'm willing for other moms to think that I'm not giving my kids all the opportunities that they deserve. I'm willing to forsake some potential scholarships to make sure that I raise my children in the admonition and fear of the Lord. I'm willing to do without some things so that I can make sure that I'm present in the lives of my kids. I'm willing to not drive the nicest car or live in the fanciest house to make sure that our lives are wholly committed unto the Lord. I will put down the side hustles. I will put down the extra hours at work that I can invest in the lives of my children. Can I tell you, you you wouldn't live an easier life and you wouldn't live a more comfortable life, but you would be an instrument here in small town Alabama through whom the glory of God would be pleased to channel. Granddads, oh my goodness, granddads, the patriarchs of your family. If you, if you would say, I'm not concerned about making sure I have my spot in the easy chair. I'm not concerned with making sure that my retirement gets down to the fifth generation. I'm not concerned with all the things that are scrolling across my screen on Fox News. What I'm concerned with is making sure that a legacy of faith is handed down to the next generation. Not because it's easier, but because it's more satisfying. Yours is a family through whom the Lord would channel his glory. What do you want? Oh, you would be surprised. You would be surprised what God can do with an obscure, displaced prophet who isn't even welcomed in his own hometown. You'd be surprised. God speaks through displaced prophets and God supplies through destitute widows. God supplies through destitute widows. So, so you have the picture. Here's Elijah. He's there and he's by the, the, book, the brook Kedrath and he's drinking and he's eating from the ravens. And you think the story from here is, and Elijah lived happily ever after. Of course not, because this is the Bible. This is not Disney Channel, right? Of course not. The brook runs dry. Now, can you imagine Elijah? That day when the, the final trickle of water goes and wets the last rock, him throwing up his hands and saying, are you kidding me? Are you serious, man? Like, I'm on the run from the king, hiding from Jezebel, and now I don't even have water to drink. God never lets his prophets figure him out because God wasn't finished working through Elijah. God sends Elijah even further outside of the, the land of Israel into a region of, called Zarephath which, is, or Zarephath, which is in Sidon. And he tells him to go there and to find a widow and that he has instructed this widow to make sure that all of Elijah's needs are met. And so Elijah goes and, and sure enough he happens upon a widow and he reaches out and he asks her for a drink of water. Imagine how dejected he must have felt, felt when he looked upon that widow and there she was with her little son. Both of them malnourished. Both of them emaciated. Both of them on the edge of starvation. God had sent him to a homeless man asking him to, so that he could ask for a place to stay. God had sent him to a bankrupt woman asking her to float him for another month. But what's significant is where she is. She's in Zarephath. She's in a land of Sidon, which again, if you go to back to 1 Kings chapter 16, it tells us that there's somebody from that region. Guess who it is? It is none other than Jezebel. Whoa. Oh, well, that's interesting. Never done that before. Jezebel herself. That is that this widow is in Belleville. She's got a PhD in Bellology from Bell University. 
She's in the very heart of where Baal is adored. The ones that are supposed to be so prosperous that Israel is jealous of them. The ones that, that Israel is trying to imitate and be like. And she's a symbol. Baal has promised Israel prosperity. Baal has promised Israel more. Baal has promised Israel that their coffers will be filled, that their cars will be luxury, that their houses will be mansions. And yet here in downtown Belleville, the woman with a PhD in Bellology from Bell University is starving to death. That is, that other gods are always going to starve you to death. Other gods are always going to starve you to death. They make big claims and they overpromise and they tell you all of the great things that they're going to bring into your life and how they're going to help you and how they're going to make your life better and how they're going to bring improvement and how they're going to bring happiness and how they're going to bring contentment and peace and all those elusive things that us people chase after. And then they pull the rug out from under you and they underdeliver on every single one. You see, the same false promises that Bell was peddling are the promises that are all of uh, your social media apps are peddling, the same false promises that all of the gods that come across your commercials on television are peddling, even the ones that we watch on Virgin River, and by the way, there are a lot of you on your Netflix account, that if I can just have more, if I can have a different kind of body, if I can have a different kind of relationship, if I can have a different kind of job, if I can have a different kind of house, if I can have a different kind of family, if I can have a different kind of child, if I can have a different kind of health, if my life was different, if it was more like what I see on all of the screens, then I would be happy. Then I would be happy. Then I would be content. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would have everything that's needed that my life would be meaningful and significant. Except scrolling across our Instagram is filled with smiling faces covering starving souls. You know that you can have a pantry full of food and still be starving to death, don't you? That's what happens when we prostrate ourselves out to the false gods of the American dream and Western prosperity and capitalism and all of the things of, of rising through the social classes. All we have to do is look at the very symbols of these movements. Go, listen to what the Kardashians actually say and when they get serious about life. Listen to what Ted Turner has written. Billionaire who owns more property than any of us can even begin to conceive of. Has income that would exceed third world country economies. Go listen to Justin Bieber and let him talk about his, his struggles and the misery of his life. And what you'll find is person after person, the very symbols that represent these false gods that are supposed to provide so much satisfaction in our lives are actually starving to death in their souls. So here's this widow. And she, he goes, and think about this. He says, go get me a drink of water. It's a drought in the middle of the Middle East. She has no water. This is obviously a generous woman. She says, yeah, I'll go, I'll go get you some water. He says, wait, 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 wait. Before you go and get me some water, I also need you to make me some food. Go and make me some bread. And she said, do you think I'm gathering these sticks so that I can have a fire? You think I'm gathering these sticks so I can light a fire under an apple pie and all of us come together at, at Western Sizzlin' and have a fantastic buffet? I'm gathering these sticks because this is what we're going to eat tonight. 
I'm gathering these sticks because my son and I are on the verge of starvation and we're going to die. She says, all I have is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and life's over. And Elijah presents her with a proposition of faith. He says, if you will give me, take that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil, and, and, and notice what he says there. He tells her that she has to bring it to him first, to bring it first to me. He says, if you'll take that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil and you'll make it together into a morsel of bread and let me eat it, here's the promise. Here's the proposition of faith that my God is the living God. My God is not like Baal. He is not like the God that you've been trained under. He's not like the God that you've bowed to. My God is actually alive and he will ensure that your flour bucket will never run full, that your jug of oil will never find the bottom as long as the drought endures. Now, put yourself in this widow's spot. Would you have given this strange, hairy man from the middle of nowhere the last food that you had to feed your son? That's not sensible, is it? What, what is presented to her is if this man is a con artist, she cannot afford to give him the last of her food. It's all that she has. All she has is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And if this man's a con artist, she's going to lose the last moments that she has on this earth with her boy. But if this man is a prophet... If this man actually represents a living God, if this man can actually, through the power of his God, sustain her through the drought, she can't afford not to give it because he offers her a path to life. So she has to decide in that moment, is his God alive or is his God dead? Is his God true or is his God false? Is he a con artist or is he reality? And that is the very question that C.S. Lewis says Jesus presents to us. This is the question that Jesus presents to us. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then we have to give him everything. We have to give him everything. We have to take that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil that is our lives, whatever it is that our lives have amounted to so much, and we lay them down because we know that he is the path forward as the living God to actual life, to enduring life, to eternal life. But if Jesus was just the most famous con artist of all the con artists, we can't afford to give him what we have now. We can't afford to give him these little lives measly and as seemingly insignificant as they are because this is all we have. This is the only time that we have with the people that we love. This is the only time that we have to be able to breathe in air and, and, and smell the flowers of spring or feel the nip of fall on our face. This is as good as it's going to get and we cannot give it. And so what we have to decide, what we have to decide is, is he true or is he not that is, we have to decide whether or not he is a God that can turn sticks into bread. So that's what Elijah was telling her. You're gathering up sticks, but Baal can't do anything with sticks. You take this, these sticks that you have collected and you bring them before my God and you offer them unto him and he, he is able to take that and multiply it so that your son can eat, so that you can eat, so that you can be sustained going forward. Oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised what a living God, what the God who reigns over all of creation, what God, who, the God who reigns and calls and beckons the nations, you'll be surprised what he can do with a, piece of, two, a couple of pieces of, of wood. And finally, I want you to see that God saves through dead sons. God saves through dead sons. 
So, so here's this woman. She takes and she, she makes this offering to Elijah. And she decides, I'm going to not do what's sensible. I'm going to do what's faithful. I'm going to take this little bit that I have. And I'm going to entrust it that this man actually knows the living God. That he is speaking on his behalf. And she offers it to him. So, of course, she lived happily ever after, right? Of course not. This is the Bible. This is real life. Instead, she finds herself in a crisis of faith. She comes to Elijah she says, Elijah, my son, he's, he fell ill and now he's dead. He's dead. And listen to what she says. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Do you hear what she's saying? She's, she's at this moment where finally she has placed her faith that Yahweh is the living God, that he is the one that can sustain her through this drought. And as soon as she begins to run after God, as soon as she begins to believe that, that the God of Elijah is the true God, Christ is right. Who cares if I have food to, to sustain my son? My son's dead anyway. What good is that? I can hear on the lips of this widow so many conversations that I've had over the years. People that will come and, and say, Cody, it seems like the harder I go after God, the more difficult my life becomes. The more I try to honor Jesus with my life, the more hardship and trouble I seem to know in my marriage. And the more hardship and trouble I seem to know with my kids. And the more difficult my job seems to get. It seems like, Cody, as I go after God, as I pursue God, as I seem to bring God glory with my life, that my life falls apart. But you know what he's doing here? God is working through this dead son to reveal what is actually a false faith. A misunderstanding and misgivings about who God actually is. You see, her statement that you have come here to remember my sin and to, to bring my sin to, 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 to bring judgment for my sin and to kill my son as a result of all the things that I've done, it shows that she believes that Yahweh operates the same way that Baal operates, that God, Yahweh has the same operating system as all of the other gods that, that are concerned only with what you do for them and how you treat them and how you respond to them all the time. Yahweh's not temperamental. He's not here one day and gone the next. He's not faithful today and unfaithful the next. He's not providing today and then punitive the next. That's not who he is. And so she's, he's drawing out through this dead son these misgivings that she has about the nature of the God that she has now committed her life to. So Elijah says, give me the boy, and he goes and he begins to intercede on, 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 his, on her behalf. And, he, and Elijah even prays. And James chapter 5 says that Elijah is a model for how we should pray as a righteous, fervent man. And he goes and he says, God, have you brought calamity on the very one that has, I've been sojourning with? Have you used me as an instrument of judgment in her life? God, raise this boy to life. And Elijah stretches out his body over the cold body of that little boy. And the warmth begins to return to his body as the blood begins to circulate. And the piercing silence of the house is interrupted by the joyful glee of a little, uh, little high-pitched squeal of a young boy coming back to life. Listen to what she says. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came in him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. My goodness, that sounds like resurrection. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know 
Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. That is that now what we are seeing is a saved woman and she is a saved woman through a dead son who has come and revealed to her the truth about who God is. That God is not the God that has come to bring death to people. God is the one who has come to bring life to people. He doesn't just rule over the dust on the ground. He doesn't just rule over the rain that falls. He rules over life and death itself. You see, you'd be surprised what God can do through a displaced prophet who isn't welcome in his own town. And you'd be surprised what God can do with a couple of pieces of old wood. Oh, but best yet, you'd be surprised what God can do through a dead son. You see, because he's alive. He's alive. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 